Welcome to the first Feed the Ball Salon, presented by Golf Digest. First off, we hope all of you listening are safe, secure, and well in these strange and disruptive times. Our wish for you is that you each might find something of value, something to cherish, in this chance we have to slow down and pause. And we sincerely hope that you enjoy these conversations me, Jim Urbina, and our guests will be having. They are meant as a diversion from, well, almost everything else. The concept of the salon as an art, music, or literature is to bring minds together. Our goal is to gather together in this virtual space a collection of some of the most interesting and prominent people in the field of golf design and construction to discuss topics that matter to golf course architecture and to answer specific questions as posed by listeners. In the first episode, to get things started, we're beginning with a selection of questions that I will pose to my co-host Jim Urbina. Later in the episode, and in future episodes, we'll bring in other designers and golf builders for longer sessions to discuss a specific question or an item chosen specifically for them. It will be especially enlightening, I believe, to hear Jim and our other guests discuss golf and design in a way that most of us aren't usually privy to hearing. So thank you for downloading and tuning into this endeavor. Please post questions for Jim and our guests directly to me on Twitter, at FeedTheBall, or via email at Derek underscore Duncan at Discovery.com. Now here's the show. Hey, Derek, there's one of the things that I look at every day in my office, and it's a quote by George Thomas. I hope you don't mind me reading it to you. No, I'd love to hear it. The golf course. Place the golf course on a level plane. Have no traps of any kind. Let every fairway be flat. The green unprotected and without rolls. Let there be no rough and nothing between the tee and green but perfect fairway. And the green itself absolutely level. And what would that result be? A thing without interest or beauty on which there is no thrill of accomplishment, which is worthwhile. A situation untrue to the tradition apart from the spirit of golf as it was given among the rolling sand dunes in Scotland. A quote by George Thomas. That's how I think about golf every day. Mm-hmm. A challenge and we have to have obstacles. We have to have greens that are more than just flat. And so this is kind of my mantra, uh, and it's important to me because it's up on my wall in my office. So that's how I look at a golf course. Uh, that says a couple things to me. It, it does say what you, what you said is that part of the attraction of golf, and, and whether people realize it or not, maybe not everybody's really understood what the attraction is for them, but it's fundamentally about a challenge. If it was easy and, and, and barren, as that passage describes, I don't think people would continue to play golf. So we, we, I think we often overlook that, don't we? That, that bunkers and the shape and contour and, and just the way holes are, are laid on the ground, that there has to be something that's not almost not easy about that. Do we sometimes overlook that? I think we overlook it. And what I have never understood is why some people want every golf course to be the same and every golf course to look exactly like the last one they came from. And when you read Thomas's quote, you realize that every golf course should be different and every bunker should be different and every green should be different. And those are the things that I think about that sometimes 
I feel that people lose touch with. If you wanted the field of baseball to play in and you knew that the distance between home plate and first base was 90 feet and every baseball field looked exactly the same, the interest, I think, would be lost. And that's the cool thing about golf is that every golf course is different, yet we all want them to be the same. So that's the dilemma. That passage also denotes, I mean, it depicts, it lays out very vividly something that is flat. How hard is it if you're trying to create diversity and, and make the holes look different? How hard is it to do on a on a piece of property that is relatively flat and and doesn't have a lot to offer. Obviously, people like yourself will love to get a really rich piece of land with great movement, but you don't always get that. So is it how hard is it to be creative like that and create 18 different holes on a kind of featureless site? Well, that's the problem that started to happen. We had that discussion after World War II, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's what started to happen, is that these golf courses were being created all across the country without regard, sometimes without regard to the topography. And so today, when somebody asks me, what's the most important thing when you're designing and building the golf course? I always say topography and the land that I'm given. That's what makes golf courses different. That's what makes the Cypress Points and the Bethpage Blacks so different is the property that they were played upon. And so the golf course, as Thomas says, is absolutely important that it has topography and things that are different on the ground, in the type of the green, in the type of the bunker, and that's what makes golf different. If I had to build the same 18 holes over and over and over on the same flat piece of ground, uh, I would get tired of myself rather quickly. I think that'd be such a challenge to, if you only got, you know, rubbish sites, like like your mentor Pete Dye often did, it'd be so hard to, I could see how you could almost outthink yourself by trying to always come up with some new idea so you weren't repetitive. And maybe that's why there is a lot of repetition in Pete's work. Well, he found golf courses and he found holes that he really liked building, designing and building. And I had talked recently about Pete Dye's involvement with par fives and why he liked the, to build them and why he was known for designing and building a good par five is that he could spread out his challenges over a longer for no better term, a longer palette in the artwork. Because if you're designing part threes, one shot holes on flat pieces of ground, you could only do so many things. And short par fours or drivable par fours, you could only do so many things without it starting to look like the hand of man. But on par fives, he could really explore those options and that creativity in the design. You mentioned something a minute ago about what happened after World War II. And one of the things you mentioned was that golf courses were increasingly being built on land that wasn't that interesting, especially if you compare it to 
the golf courses of the first 30 years of the 20th century. Another thing that happened then, and this goes to exactly to that quote uh, about challenge, is that there was a real movement because golf was growing so fastly and it was it was moving into a, a, a working class or a, or a blue collar or a kind of an everyday class of Americans who were taking up the game. There was really a move to, I don't want to say make golf easy, but I think we lost that spirit of challenge. I think the whether it was the times, the consumer demand, the people that were practicing it, the owners and developers, but I think they, they wanted to facilitate people playing golf as a recreation, as a leisure. They didn't want them to be frustrated. And in doing so, that starts a long trend of us losing that fundamental thing that George Thomas is writing about is how to create interest and how to create drama and how to create challenge. And you're absolutely right. One of the things that I, and we had the discussion before, and I had to agree with you on that, is that people wanted to go out and play and walk and enjoy the game. And they didn't want to have to study and analyze and ponder every golf shot. And I, I totally agree with that, that there has to be golf courses that just allow you to be out and enjoying and playing golf. But when it's time to step up to the next challenge, when it's time to go and challenge your thought process and the game that you have begun to learn, then it goes back to Thomas that says you need some thrill of accomplishment and you need a situation that brings you back to how the game of golf was founded. And that was on the sand dunes of, of Scotland and Ireland. And so, yes, we went through that evolution. Everybody has a chance to play but now we're going to seek out these new and and different things that we haven't experienced at our local golf course. And that's why we want to see sometimes big dunes or we want to see very creative greens or uh, bunkers that will challenge you. And so everybody wants to improve. Everybody wants a new challenge. And that is that thrill of accomplishment. And speaking of reconnecting, you mentioned, you know, golf can go back to these very early concepts of, of and, and they're sight driven and sight related. You can also, if you if you have a steady diet of of kind of just your average uh, public golf courses wherever you live, and and it, everything is just kind of you know middle of the road. Maybe it's accommodating. Maybe it's it's not presented great. If you really want to get woken up and think about what golf is all about and get your batteries recharged. Go see, go to Southern California and start playing some George Thomas courses that have been taken care of or, or put back together. You'll quickly understand what he's talking about in that quote and reconnecting to challenge and strategy and being thrilled standing on a tee and wondering if you can pull off a shot, chipping and putting around some of those greens. Uh, no better person than George Thomas to kind of reawaken uh, our slumbering passion for challenge if, if we have fallen asleep. And, you know... I love Riviera. That's my favorite Thomas golf course. Yeah. Every hole is different. I wish I wish more people got to play it because that they would understand that this thrill of accomplishment, this challenge, uh, it is fun. And yet sometimes even I become when I when I've got to the seventh and eighth shot, I wonder 
how much fun this is. But when I'm done, I remember every shot and I remember every hole. And I think that's what brings me back to golf and, and trying to uh, better myself and see cooler and more imaginative ways to build a green or create a bunker. Yeah. And Riviera does that for me. Yeah. One last thought on Thomas and Riviera is when you just watch it on TV once a year, it, it all kind of looks the same. You know, it's a very green golf course. You see the trees. There are a few famous holes. But my impression always watching it all the years was was it just didn't actually look that interesting. I knew it was historic. When you go and play there and see it for the first time or for, or for the 10th time, whatever it is, it's remarkable getting back to diversity. It's remarkable how much diversity there is on that golf course and how every hole just about every hole is a completely different setup and situation. It's a different question every time. And it's just to be able to pack that much variety and diversity of strategy and thought processes into one 18-hole golf course is masterful. And it's it's too bad you have to kind of experience it. You can't get it off TV, but it's really a, a uniquely diverse golf course. I totally agree with you. The topography the style of bunker, the green locations, the way they turn them, you know, the Cape, yeah. the Channel Hole, the Redan, the Eden Hole, the Double Plateau, or what they call, um, oh, God, I'm trying to remember the name, the 15th hole. It has this whale in the middle yeah, the, the of the green. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, I just think if everybody could play that, they would become so addicted to that style of golf architecture that, uh, yes, they would go back to their golf course and enjoy some of the rounds that they play. But the goal wing at Riviera, the 15th hole, splendid. Mm. The 10th hole, the drivable par four, splendid. And Thomas put it all in one package, Riviera. There it is. Well, let's fast forward to modern day golf. And uh, we're going to get to a couple of questions. Uh, This one was coming in on Twitter specifically for you, Jim, and it comes from Lynx Nation. Uh, Jason Bruno came up with this one. He says, he asks, how did the ghost tree factor into the original plan for the blind tee shot at the third hole of Old McDonald? Great question. So the third hole at Old McDonald at the Bandon Dunes Resort is a hole which drew inspiration from Sahara. It was a golf hole that McDonald had done several times. And the most famous Sahara he did was the second hole at the National Golf Links of America, where you hit over a ridge, but you had to be careful. It was a blind shot. You had to be careful where to place the hole so that your second shot did not put you in a predicament where you couldn't see the green. So when we laid out Old McDonald, the third hole at the Bandon Dunes Resort, Sahara, which we would call Sahara, was based on the third hole at Royal St. George's. The third hole at Royal St. George's was a blind par three hole. But since we were not trying to exactly replicate the second hole at, at the National or the third hole at Royal St. George's, this hole, the third hole at Old McDonald, fit that ideal hole perfectly, and we drew inspiration from that. As I started to clear the gorse away 
so that we could sow seed fescue, that lovely brown grass fescue to play on. As I started to clear the gorse away with, with the clearing crew, this tree kind of slowly came out of the gorse. Gorse grows 10, 12, sometimes 13, 14 feet high. And so when you start to clear it out, you start to find undulations in the ground that you never knew that were there. Well, one of the things that started to come out of the clearing of the gross, now, don't get me wrong, I saw the top of the tree. We saw the top of the tree, but never did we think that it was going to be as stately as it uh, appears today. So the tree did not factor into the hole as we had intended to, to play, like Sahara, but it was too iconic of a feature to not consider it to be a part How long did it take you to figure out that hole? I mean, you just talked about how the tree, yeah, you peeled away the gorse and, and the tree was there and, and you could really let it stand on its own. But how how long did it take you or how, was there a light bulb moment when you said, we've got to get over this ridge and get into this bowl area where most of the golf course is, but and there's no better way to do it than just go over the top? And there was no better way than going over the top. And since Sahara, the hole that McDonald had brought back from the UK of Royal St. George's was one of his go-to holes, it was the perfect link from the opening first two holes at Old McDonald to get you over to the ocean. It was a perfect part of the routing. And I remember all of us talking about it, Tom, Mike Kaiser, Brad Klein was there. I remember George Botto was there, uh, consultants as part of the designing and building of Old McDonald. We all talked about the factor of the tree. Well, what if somebody hit the tree with the ball? Well, it simply would fall down to the bottom of the slope, and then you would play it again. And it is only around 160 yards, 170 yards from the tee to get over that ridge. Not very far. And we gave you ample fairway, almost 220 feet of fairway to hit it to the right of the tree. But if you wanted to hit to the what Max Bear calls the line of charm, Max Bear was a, a, a golf course architect that worked with Ellerston McKenzie. He didn't build many golf holes, but he wrote very well, and he talked about the line of charm, I believe. And we found that going left of the ghost tree, which, by the way, uh, the ghost tree moniker never really came up. We didn't talk about naming the tree. That just kind of evolved uh, the ghost tree. Mm -hmm. So when Jason talks about the ghost tree, we never named the name of the tree. It was just the, the tree, it, the, the, the sentinel. <laughs> That's how I look at uh -huh. it. It's the sentinel. So if you played to the left of the tree, that was the direct line to the green and it would make it a favorable shot uh, down towards the green. If you played to the right of the tree, you had plenty of fairway to play with, but you could uh, encounter an obstacle, a, a little dune that's to the right front of the green that was nicely shaped in by uh, Bruce Hepner, who worked for Renaissance Golf at the time. Bruce Hepner's on his own now. Uh, he shaped that in, and I thought, uh, and we all thought, 
what a nice challenge. Play left of the tree, the ghost tree as it's now called, and you have the perfect line. But you're challenged that way. Play right of the tree, you have ample fairway, and hopefully you can uh, uh, create that next second shot into the green. So that was the factors that played into it. And I remember Mr. Kaiser, Mike Kaiser, and Brad Klein and I sitting on the tee, and we had a bucket of balls. <laughs> we were all, it was sand, it was, we called it dirt golf. Mm -hmm. We would all just sit there and hit balls over that ridge and found it to be relatively easy. It's such a statement hole with that old McDonald experience because, you know, you play the first two holes kind of across this flattish plane and, you, you know, you're kind of like not sure what all the fuss is about. <laughs> and then you get on that tee and now you just see this dune in front of you. And once you clear it with your tee shot, hopefully you do, it's just, it's an exhilarating moment. And it's a, it's kind of one of those rare moments in golf where it's an all or nothing shot. It's not a terrible penalty. I mean, you can play it, I think, if you don't clear it, but you you want it. That's the one shot you want to execute there. You just, you want to get that drive up and over that dune, hopefully on the line that you chose, and then go see where it ends up. It's just one of those great, great emotional feelings in, in all of golf, I think. And if, if uh, listeners who have never played it, when you walk up the ridge line and you get to the top by the ghost tree, and you see the reveal that's about to hit in front of you, you can't believe yeah. how beautiful that view is from up there. Well, I have a feeling we, we there's uh, a lot more to explore about Old McDonald and how that golf course came about and, and all of its mysteries and secrets and, and fun elements. We'll revisit that, I'm sure, down the line. But right now we're going to move on to another question which I have a feeling we're not going to be able to adequately <laughs> uh, answer definitively. It's maybe this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation about this topic as well. But this comes from Don Mahaffey, uh, a very well-known golf course builder and irrigation specialist. And he asks, he, or he says, bunker liners, sand, drainage, maintenance are all better than ever. Bunker materials are technically advanced, yet we continue to see most bunkers built on high spots for ease of maintenance and visibility. Will we ever return to a sand bunker being a hole in the ground? It's a lot to unpack there. Great question. And a question that I deal with on a daily basis with Greens committees, Greens chairmen, members of clubs, the golfing public. And I just, I have to go back to several quotes that has really influenced me when somebody talks about bunkers. So if I may, Derek. Please. Mackenzie says, and I quote, one of the objects in placing hazards is to give the players as much pleasurable excitement as possible. <laughs> Now, you and I both know pleasure and excitement. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Derek, what do you think about that quote, Mackenzie? It, it just goes back to what we started the conversation about is, is there's a, uh, an element of, of tantalization in golf, of, of tease, of uncertainty, of challenge that, uh, and bunkers, bunkers create that element and, we've we've gotten it back lately we've kind of a lot of architecture has is 
appeals to to that necessary emotion, that necessary, you know, desire to be to be taunted and and perhaps over overcome the obstacle. But it's taking a while, and and it was missing for a long time. But it's such an elemental part of the game, and of course, just like Thomas McKinsey understood that better than ever. Um, Don's question is, yeah, have have we gone too far away from that? And now we're, we're presenting bunkers in too pure of a form. They're, they've lost that very thing that McKinsey that is, is trying to illustrate. So, Derek, you know, the funny thing is I would look Don right in the face and I would agree with him on a lot of things that he says. And I would say to Don, Don, you know what you need to tell the golfers who talk about these bunkers? I would say, let's talk about another quote that McKenzie said. McKenzie said that, and I quote this again, most golfers have an entirely erroneous view of the real object of hazards. The majority of them simply look upon hazards as a means of punishing a bad shot when their real objective is to make the game more interesting. That's what I would tell Don, and I think that Don would believe me because he says, when are we going to go back to the hole in the ground? And so I keep bringing these up again. One last thing. McDonald, the father of golf course architecture, said, the only thing I do now is to endeavor the making of the Hatchers as natural as possible. I try not to make the golf course any harder, but I but to make it more interesting. And that's the foundation of that discussion we're going to have today. Make it more interesting. Make it more challenging. We're not punishing you. We're making that chance to make that recovery shot. And Derek, if I said that to you and I said, we're just going to put a hole in the ground, you'd say, well, I'm good with that. I think. Um yeah, I think the question gets to at something else as well, and that is, if you if you dig a hole in the ground, are you doing anything else to it? Because because when you say a hole in the ground, that does sound punishing. If you go in it, you're in a hole. Can you get out? How big is it? How deep is it? What's the sand like? So there's a, there's a lot of things ways that this question can go. I take it to mean it's punishing. And you you leave it in a, in a in some kind of a raw state. Maybe I'm reading something completely different into into what Don's talking about. But th- th- it goes to the whole concept that comes up now and again, and, and maybe it should come up even more often. Is that sh- what if we just removed rakes and didn't have didn't rake bunkers, and you had sand pits that were just left in their natural states? Now, would that is that too punishing? Is that too penal? You still want to avoid them, but now you want to avoid them even even more so. So now are you are you uh, taking away uh, some element of risk because you really you're not going to try to get up right next to one at this point because you know it's a it's a shot penalty. So it, it's a it's one of those age old golf questions where it's what like what's too too far, what's too punishing, where where do you cross the line to actually diminish challenge and strategy if you leave something in in too raw of a state. And so let's go back to the foundation of bunkers and hazards and where they came about. So the game started in the 15th century. The people that played the game in, their, in the earliest beginnings would just 
uh, hit a ball over uh, the natural ground of, of, of Scotland and Ireland, the Lynx golf land. And so the balls would be hit and they would take shots out of the turf and there would be, if the ball collected in one area, the, the divots would continue to be taken out of the same area. And then the sand would blow out and the rain would erode these, these pits and then a bunker would form or a hazard. So that's how they kind of started. It wasn't somebody going out there on a piece of paper, old Tom Morris, drawing on a piece of paper. Let's put a bunker right here. They, these bunkers evolved from people playing the golf course and wind and erosion happening. And so did they have a mechanical rake to groom it? No. They just kind of wiped the sand away after they hit it and left it as good as they could leave it for the next player. And so fast forward to where we're at today. If, Derek, you just scraped your foot in the bunker and the, left it for the next player, uh, how do you think that would go over? It would not go over well today. But is that a good thing? So how much upkeep is required? How much perfection in the sand is required? How much of a garden do we have to leave every player so they could execute that shot? That's the thing that I'd love to talk to Don about. What is, as a, as a land steward, Don is a land steward, that's what I would call him, of the golf course. Don, how much do you believe you have to take care of this golf course? And how much does perfection have to play into it so that we, go, we can all enjoy the game? Derek, you and I both know. We've both landed in a footprint. We've both had a what they call a plug lie. I just say it's part of the game. It's a rub of the green. I just, I just go and play it. But you see... I'm just playing the game. I'm not trying to shoot 27 under par, jokingly. And so I take it as it lies. And that's what one of the original rules of the game was, play it as it lies. But somehow we've taken it to the next level. We have the technology, as a famous show would say. We can rake them. We can blend the sand. We can drain them. And we could make them perfect even after two-inch rain, but at what cost? There are a lot of kind of economic questions and cultural questions built into Don's query as well, which is why I think we're going to uh, continue to talk about this. And, yeah, taking care of the, the cost presentation, expectation, triangle or dynamic, however you want to term that, is is something that kind of gets at the core of, of modern golf, I think. And let's, Jim, let's see if we can get Don to join us on this podcast and he can kind of flesh out his ideas. Because I feel like he's, he's, he's pointing at something with his question that, that, is, that means a lot to him. And I'd like to hear his thoughts on it uh, as well. I totally agree. I, I, I could... I could throw out two or three questions to Don uh, in in the in the idea that we still, as Thomas says, we have to have a challenge and we have to have some thrill of accomplishment. 
but I see Don's side, uh, 129,000 bunkers on a golf course. Do we need that many? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just speaking. Uh, there's no such thing as that many bunkers on a golf course. But do would one bunker be as good as five? Probably so. Would one well-placed bunker on the left center of a fairway be better than six parallel bunkers on both sides of the fairway? Probably so. So that's the question I would banter back and forth with Don on. The art of architecture and design versus the science of keeping these conditions playable for all levels of players. Let's try to make that happen. Uh, we'll, we'll reach out to, to Don and we'll try to make that happen. Uh, Jim, let's do one more question before we turn it over to our guests and bring some, some other voices in. This one comes from Stephen Proctor, um, a friend of the Feed the Ball podcast, and he asks, what do you think is a reasonable green speed for a course played by a wide range of players, a municipal or daily fee course? Courses seem to me to be overly obsessed with super fast greens. Another, <laughs> another big loaded question. Well, green speeds, Whew, that's a tough one. You know why it's tough? It's because, Derek, we have to define reasonable. What is reasonable to you and what is reasonable to me and to the foursome of golfers behind us and the twosome of golfers in front of us? What is reasonable? And so I say what's reasonable depends on the type of green that you're playing on. So if you took some of the most dramatic greens of the golden ages of design, Sitwell Park and some of the double greens at St. Andrews, you would say, wow, those are pretty dramatic. Or including some of the greens at McKenzie Belt, the 16th at Pasa Temple, the 7th and the 9th at Cypress Point. I could go on and on. So reasonable speed for a certain type of green. Now, you could say to me, Derek, that I play on dead flat greens. Well, maybe speed is the entertainment value of it. But can I read you a couple things that I looked up and I have shown on some of my presentations to golf course superintendents? Okay. This is an article from the U.S. Green section, and it talks about green speeds then and now. And I'd be happy to share this with you so you could post it on your Feed the Ball podcast. Sure. The pace of putts has quickened as measured by the stint meter, pictured above. That's a picture of a, a device that measures how fast greens roll. In 1977, at the Olympic Club in San Francisco, guess what the speed of the greens were in 1977? On the stint meter, 77. Do you actually want me to guess? Can I guess? Yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, I'd like I, to take I, this. Um, nine. 8.4. Hmm. Yale Golf Club, 510. San Francisco Golf <laughs> Club, 6.7. Hazeltine, 8.3. Desert Forest, 7.2. Butler National in Oak Brook, Illinois, 7.7. <laughs> Those were the speeds in 1977. 
Now, just really, real so, quick, do you think that that's because yep. that's as fast as agronomy would allow, or there was some acknowledgement of the contour on the greens and they didn't want them any faster than that? Well, I believe it was a couple things. I believe it was agronomy. I believe that the mowing, the flex mowers of today, the flex mower greens of today can mow so much tighter. We roll greens now today, superintendents roll greens. So there is a way to speed up that that stint meter reading. So let's fast forward to 2008, just 10 years ago. Same golf courses. Here are the speeds. 10 10.5, 10.6, 10.0, and Olympic Club, 10.3. That's in 2008-2009. That was just 10 years ago. Hmm. So today, you know they're even faster than that. And on TV, when you watch golf on TV, sometimes the announcers will say the greens are running at whatever speed they choose to post. Now, I know golf courses that don't post a green speed. All they want you to do is 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 enjoy the round of golf and not worry about the speed. You know the one question I always ask golfers when they come off the golf course in regards to the, the way the greens are putting? Mm. What? All I ask is, are they rolling true? And so I'm going to get back in a roundabout way to Stephen Stephen's question. What is reasonable? Well, if you have greens that are slightly undulating, I think reasonable is a speed in which a green and a ball can, in, you can enjoy a green with the golf ball that rolls true. And I've always said that when you roll greens and mow these greens at extreme heights, the consequences of the agronomy of these greens sometimes can suffer during high stress parts of the golf course. So, Golf courses, the speed of the green, that changes daily. I remember somebody once asking me, Derek, well, what do you plan to set the green speeds at Pacific Dunes and Old Mac? And I said, well, what time of the day are you talking about? Because, as you know, green speeds change all through the day, from the first time they mow them in the morning to if a, a, a rain event comes through, or the wind or the or the sun heats up, those all affect green speed. So reasonable at what time of day, Stephen, that's what I would say. I think the other thing that, that maybe Stephen's getting at, or at least I'm going to get at, is this kind of ties into the bunker issue as well, is customer expectation. And I think what he's alluding to is the desire of golfers to play on really fast greens. I think a lot of American golfers, if not the majority, view that as a sign of excellence. It's a luxury product to be able to put on fast greens, you know, especially if you're a public player and you know the country clubs in your cities are, you know, their their greens purportedly roll at 10 or 11 or whatever the magical number is. You just, at some point, you want to crack at that. That's just in the DNA and the mindset of, the average American player. So they want to try to see something comparable to that at the golf course that they play every day. 
And of course, if that's the demand, then the superintendent is going to, you know, try to give it to him. So there's just, there's this desire that's baked into the, the process of wanting to play fast greens because it's perceived as a, as a symbol of excellence. If you, you know, the faster the green, the better the golf course in so many people's minds, you and I don't think that way. Um, but I think that is sort of like the mindset that, that a lot of American golfers have, and that's kind of drives this whole train in a direction that probably may not be good for golf, may not be healthy, may not be economically attainable. Is that, does that make sense to you? It absolutely makes sense. I know I play a lot of public golf courses in and around the Denver area. And I know that people enjoy putting on greens that are perceived to be fast. And I look at them as if they're rolling true. But I have to remind people that in golf course design and the creation of greens, we have to be careful that when we're creating these these greens that cost so much money to build and maintain and to keep up uh, during the day and through the summers and winters and springs and falls, that we have to be careful that we don't make them too steep so balls fall off of them when the, 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 the speed is too fast. But I also want to remind myself is that I don't want greens to be so flat that the character of the green is muted. And yes, I know people enjoy fast greens, but if you make greens so fast that you can't enjoy the of their creation, then what good is that speed? So Derek, you know, Stephen brings up a good point and we've talked and we tried to define reasonable. But to me, reasonable is favoring a slower green speed-wise versus faster. Because as we all know, in order to maximize the contours and to enjoy the outer limits of your putting surface, the edges of the greens, we have to have a green that's reasonable. And to me, reasonable is slower maybe an eight or a nine and i know i know people will say eight or nine come on jim well it all depends on the style and architecture of the green you can't expect to have greens rolling 13 and 14 and 15 like tournament day preparation because greens stress out you want greens to have a healthy life and a slower green speed maximizing the extent of your green surface to me is reasonable. And that's what I would say. Happy grass, happy life or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly right, Derek. Perfect. It also reminds me that, you know, you can look at putting since that's what we're talking about in two different ways. One, is it a mechanical skill? If it's a mechanical skill, fairly flat, really fast greens would, you would you would feel like you were rewarded if you thought you were a good mechanical putter on big ballyneal rolling exuberant greens like that. It's, it's more of an, an artistic skill. Um, and so it, the speed measures different qualities in a putter, I think. 
Oh, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I always say if you kept the greens slower, you could use those greens to their fullest extent. Right. The most entertaining greens have character. And to me, flat greens have no character. If you have a flatter green and you increase the speed, what fun would that be? All you end up really doing is learning how to judge the speed of the green and your putt. But I think that greens that have character and challenge are much more fun and entertaining when the speeds are slowed down and you could judge the character of the green and plan that shot with some imagination instead of just judging the speed. The other thing that slower greens test is, it sounds, it sounds kind of funny, but it's true, it, ball striking, putter striking. You know, if you have to swing the putter a little bit longer, take a longer, more firm stroke, when you deliver the impact on the ball, you need it to be right in the middle of the putter face. On really fast, on greens that are stooping 10 or 11, you just really have to nudge it. You can almost hit it off the toe and it'll, you know, it's going to get to the hole. So it, uh, there's another level of complexity to highly contoured, slightly slower greens is you really have to make a solid strike on the ball. Uh, and talk about barely touching it. I remember uh, looking and putting on the greens uh, at you know, I could think of several clubs that have really fast greens. And I remember thinking, if I just tap this, that ball's going to go flying past the hole. And for me, the creativity of mastering the putter is not just tapping it, but stroking it so that I have a a, a, a swooping curve or, or a, a up and over on a putt. And those things are way more entertaining for me than just barely tapping it and holding on and hope the ball has a parachute on the end of it. Yeah, I know it. Well, again, I think this was another one of those questions that we, I don't know if we got it close to, you know, addressing it the way Stephen wanted us to. It's a, it's a big topic. Hopefully we'll come back to it. I think it's an, it's one of those things that uh, demands a, a lot more discussion. Uh, It's one of those questions that, you know, everybody will have a different opinion too, because as as we as I said, a lot of people think, you know, the better the player, usually they don't want a putt that's going to break three times. You know, that goes up and over. They they want to you know be able to judge that the speed and hit their line and and maybe see the ball go in the hole. So they're not going to want the you know they're going to want something a little flatter and, and 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 speedier. So it's a matter of preference as well as anything as like bunker hazards being raked and smooth. So you're not going to be able to please all people. It's a big, it's a big question and a big topic, but I think right now, Jim, what we should do is go ahead and bring in our first guest and want to thank Steven and Don and uh, Jason Bruno for their questions. And for everybody listening to this podcast, go ahead and uh, tweet me more questions for our next episode and you can also email questions to me directly at Derek underscore Duncan at discovery.com. And Jim, thanks for answer, taking, the, taking the lead on answering those questions. And, and let's move on to our guest. Great, Derek. Look, looking forward to it. I have plenty of ideas and plenty of people we need to talk to. Excellent. Let's get to it. Well, the powers of technology and time have worked in our favor 
and we were actually able to bring Don Mahaffey into the conversation for more in-depth discussion about bunkering. Don is based out of Houston and owns a golf construction, irrigation, and agronomy company called Greenscape Methods. One quick note, Jim's connection drops out at one point in the talk, but you only miss out on about five seconds. We pick up the discussion on the topic of Wolf Point, a fascinating lay-of-the-land course that Don helped build with designer Mike Nuzo, south of Houston, for a private client. You can hear more about the Wolf Point story in Feed the Ball episodes 23 and 24. I think we share the same love for uh, a common theme about golf and its its simplicity. And that's why I I wanted to go down to Wolf Point because I had been told that it was as cool uh, a golf course in in the simplest form as possible. So I had to see it. You know, that's sort of a, I don't know, a once in a lifetime thing, but to be able to have the freedom to do something like that and to be able to, you know, have a client that basically said, I don't care if anybody else in golf likes it. And I don't care if any, what anybody else in golf thinks about it. I want to play it every day and I don't want to get tired of it. And, um, you know, that was, that took us a little while to get our heads around that. But once we did, we just ran with it and we, we think we, accomplished that he never got tired of playing it he played it every day and it was very elastic and very uh the holes changed a lot based on where the where the you know the hole was cut and the green and and where the tees were and and we learned how to play with it And there's a you know a thousand different ways to play it and so he had a he had a great time with us so we 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 hit our goal of making him happy with his golf course but Jim, I, you mentioned uh, you wanted to see Wolf Point because it represented uh, a simpler way to design a golf course, and you were curious about that. Did you learn anything from Wolf Point when you saw it? Absolutely, and that was one of the reasons when Don brought up the point about uh, when could we go back to the hole in the ground in the bunkers. Uh, the first thing I thought about was the simple presentation of Wolf Point, and Don was no was the perfect person to ask that question. When could we go back to simpler is better? The reason that I was so in love with Wolf Point was that they didn't have bunkers all over the place. And Don could correct me if I'm wrong. But what I found was that the greens were very interesting. The landforms and the the swales that they used to create those those run-up shots were very interesting. And one bunker was better than 10. And so that was the first question I was going to ask Don was, was that it's easy to go back to, to me, go back to the bunkers that were a more simple or form of, of, uh, of architecture because Wolf Point proved that you could do that. Don't you think Don? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, Mike and I were determined not to build a single bunker that we felt was some sort of just a signpost or a framer or an aiming point in the distance. So we were like almost to the point of so anti that, that we were not going to do that. And so that already eliminated a lot of bunkers that we see in modern golf, right? We weren't, there was no bunkers built 
no keep you in the game bunkers like we see even the the most famous architects build where they're on a kind of a severe hold they'll, they'll stick a bunker somewhere just so you know if you hit a little bit of wayward shot the bunker is not really a hazard the bunker saves you and none of those we were determined not to do anything like that and we were mike was dead set against any signpost off the tee like he was like we are not going to stick a bunker out there anywhere that somebody can use it we think we put there to to show them how to play the hole so we didn't have any of those sorts of bunkers. Um, and, uh, you know, it, you're right, Jim, and we, we, we were not afraid at all to build a bunker that gathered balls knowing it might also gather water. You know, we knew we could do some little tricks around the bunkers to spend water off here and there or whatever, but we kept the bunkers pretty small and we put a lot of drainage into them and we figured if we kept them small enough, if they did get blown up in a heavy rain, they'd be easy to fix. And it worked. And so, you know, a bunker doesn't have to be very big if it gathers balls over a kind of a larger area. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but, but we certainly tried. I mean, when, when Mike first drew it on paper, there was 100 bunkers and we ended up putting in like 60. But most of them were like, in terms of sand surface, like 250 square feet of sand, you know, they're little. And, um, and yet, you know, and you, and, and we didn't try to hide them, but we didn't build them to be super visible either. We might put a little wrinkle in the ground. And if you played it off it enough, you'd kind of, okay, start to get the clue. Like, Oh, there's something probably out there that I remember, like maybe there's something going on there, but there was a lot of bunkers out there that you couldn't see from the tee. And again, we were building for one guy, a guy who does Mensa crossword puzzles in his spare time, <laughs> smart dude. So, you know, he could remember where they were and he didn't care if the guys he was playing against didn't know they were there because he wanted to beat them anyhow. So, you know, it was a pretty unique situation, but I don't know why it can't work in a less you know, exclusive environment as well. And one of the things that caught my attention at Wolf Point was, uh, again, the few uh, fewer is better. But the reason I wanted to talk to you, Don, about uh, about bunkers and your your uh, concern about them, and concern is you could take it either way. Concern, but yeah, you have to. You are from the side of not only designing a golf course, but maintaining the golf course. And you have proven to others that you can maintain golf courses for much cheaper than the normal golf course superintendent, if I may say that. So how did you approach this as far as I have X amount of money to maintain it? Or was it really the architecture that made you think, uh, whatever we end up doing architecturally, I can maintain it in a very economical fashion. I think both. I mean, we, we had, so if we're talking about Wolf Point, we had, um, we had an owner who, you know, we were building it for who knew it was pretty far out there to have your own 18 hole golf course. Like he knew that was, you know, excessive, I guess, or, 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 you know, whatever you want to describe it. And, he he balanced that out with by saying I don't want to I don't want to write a big check every year so whatever you build build it in such a way that we can maintain it inexpensively so 
you know, we don't have any bunkers too close to each other. We don't have a lot of handwork around the bunkers type of thing. And I think more than anything, it was, it, it was a, it was a mentality of we never did anything out there on that particular golf course unless it made the golf better. So we weren't going to worry too much about an area that went off color or if, or if the bunkers got a little, we never edged the bunkers. We, we edged them with a, like a hat, like a, I taught a guy to have a little one gallon sprayer with like a half, uh, half strength roundup and he would just burn the edges back, which ended up making a really cool edge without any weed eating or that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, we just, we just sort of took it on as sort of a challenge to see how, how little we could spend and still keep the golf course nice. And I mean, we had a lot of visitors throughout the years and I never heard anybody complain about the golf course, not being in good shape. So, um, something, you know, it's, Something worked, and more than anything, you think about the golf courses we play. I don't care where you go. Think about any golf course we play and think about how much time maintenance staff has to spend on things that don't really make the golf better. And we can talk about construction costs like that too. So, you know, what what is it? You know, that's kind of that to the bunker thing that I, I, I you know, some of my ideas about the bunkers is, you know, how, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing some of the things we do? And the answer is, if, if, you, if you ask the question like, does that make the golf better? If that's, if that's a question you ask, I think some of the answers sometimes aren't as clear cut about why we're doing things. Are you talking about maintaining or, I'm sorry, in the design phase? I'm actually kind of talking about both, um, both things. I, I think that question can be asked in both ways i mean we know in the design phase you're gonna you know people want to build beautiful golf courses right and and so we get that but but uh when it comes to bunkers there there seems to be this uh and and one of the things that i was i think i said in um was we have these liners that are so expensive now and we have this drainage thing you know whether it's bunker solutions or capillary concrete or billy bunker or whatever the latest thing is they're all pretty expensive relatively speaking versus with the days when we didn't put a liner in and um we do that and then we have to have this perfect sand that's angular and you know perk 60 inches and you know all this sort of thing we have to do all of these things to it's it's as if it's as if our maintenance staffs are bigger our maintenance budgets are bigger but the bunkers are supposed to be maintenance free or something. I don't know. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I feel the same way about irrigation. It's like it's 2020. All our irrigation components keep getting better and better. And yet we keep needing to put more of them in the ground. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like if everything's getting better, shouldn't we be able to do more with less than, than, you know, it requires more of these components. And that's, I think some of the, some of the questions I have about the way we do things. Well, I can tell you from my point of view, and that is that I'm trying to create a golf course, design a golf course, restore a golf course with all of the facets that make it fun and entertaining. And one of those parts of that design 
are hazards. Uh, I'll call them hazards mm-hmm. for, for no better term. Bunkers, hazards. And I know that when I judiciously think about putting a bunker in, that it has to have some value. But see, Don, I'm gone. I've designed this beautiful work of art, this interactive design, but now somebody has to maintain that. Mm -hmm. And the part I get lost in is the requirement of the superintendents, you being one of them as as a builder and superintendent, that somehow this bunker or hazard has to be maintained like a sand garden. How right. do you how do you how do you tell people it's a hazard and it's not to be kept like this? Uh, you must struggle with that all the time in all of the golf courses you're involved with. Well, yeah, because it's um, I mean, anymore, anymore, like if we would consider, uh, you know, if we were to say, OK, a bunker is going to be a hazard, you know, just a bunker built nowadays where you can put local sands in that potentially, you know, you might get a buried lion or maybe even just a a ball sitting in a depression, you know, that I think anymore is considered like hazardous. I mean, because it seems like that's never supposed to happen anymore. And because, (laughs) right. And so, sorry to laugh. You're right. You're right. So, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, we might have said, well, why wide furrowed rakes and we only rake them once a week or like, you know, there's no rakes like at Pine Valley or something. Now, today is 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 a rough bunker, just a bunker where you use a local sand. I mean, just that you still put the liner in, you still do all those things. But instead of shipping sand halfway across the country at one hundred thirty dollars a ton, you can put twenty dollar ton sand in it and potentially get a get a you know, a a challenging lie once in a while. I think in this day and age, that's considered like an outlier. And yet it doesn't make any sense to me because I think just that alone would bring some of the hazard back to it. And at least, at least the, the the ball, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not in the bunker with a plate compactor, you know, every 60 days and this perfect sand making it like, you know, and you're, you're using a broom on the faces and doing all these crazy <laughs> things we yes, do. I understand. Right? Yes, I understand. <laughs> so, uh, to me, I think when you, I, I saw your first question in the email from Derek about the sand garden, I'm thinking, you know, it, it all is relative to the time period we're in. And I just think right now, like, how about if we're just allowed to throw, a, 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 you know, here in Houston is, is kind of the land of mud. We're in heavy soils. There's not a lot of quarries around. If we could just use a bank sand of some of the local rivers, which we used at Wolf Point, it's a fine sand. And yes, one out of six or seven times, you get a, a ball in a depressed lie, and you just got to explode it out. Kind of like didn't we all learn to play golf that way when we were kids? Weren't there lies in the bunkers like that? And and that's gone now. And in most places, that's not acceptable. They replace the sand or the, or something. I think that one simple thing could make a big change in maintenance budgets and construction budgets. You know how expensive that sand is now. Jeez. And, uh, you know, I wonder what your thoughts on that is, how often you end up, you know, you know, we've been in a couple of projects here in Houston where we've, you know, they're bringing, they're barging sand down the Mississippi river, you know, to at incredible cost to, because it plays so perfectly. Well, so, I can tell you, I can tell you that I've, I, 
I'm always asked the question, what sand do you prefer? And I always prefer the dirtiest, cheapest sand when golf courses are being restored or built. Yeah. And, Don, I've been lucky. I've been working on sand sites for the Kaisers, uh, mm -hmm. Michael Pascucci and others that uh, have afforded us 100-foot uh, deep uh, bunkers if we wanted. And, and I say that jokingly, but the sand is endless. So those are natural sands. But yeah. you see, I think the difference is what has happened was that they wanted Wolf Point. You want you would like Wolf Point and, and the sands of Houston and the Texas area to be local to that point. And yeah. the golf courses of the northern part of the country to be have their sands. But you see, everybody wants it to be the same all across the country. And that was so far from the original thought of a bunker or a hazard and and I think that because we have the technology to do it, everybody's bunker sands could be the same. But the cost to do that, we always have to look at. And you said it perfectly. You said we took the local sand, we used it at Wolf Point and other projects in Houston. And why couldn't that be the norm instead of the exception? Right. Don, with the Houston Memorial Project you're working on, were you able to get this point across on any level in that project without, you know, without stepping on anybody's toes or saying something you're not supposed to, but how were, how were you satisfied with those bunkers? Well, I think what Tom did, and, and I'll tell you that he worked with Brooks Kepka on this project and it was, and, and listening to those guys work together was, was pretty cool. Um, Brooks is a, I like Brooks a lot. He's a, he's a sharp guy that, I think it's a little bit of a bad rap from the media for being just kind of a bomb and gouger guy. He, he, he knows the game and he knows the amateur game. Um, and they decided early on to have very few bunkers. There was no way it's a tour stop. Okay. The tour agronomy staff will give and take on a few things. Bunker sand is not one of them. They truly want their players to play in the same bunker sand pretty much every week. So, and Tom knew that from the get go, there was never going to, we were never going to argue with him about that. And so the answer was to build only 19 bunkers. It took a golf course that had 65 for the renovation and, and put in only 19 bunkers, which makes perfect sense on a heavy clay site on a heavy flat clay site in an area where it rains 60 inches a year, you know, let the challenge be in the contouring around the greens and the uneven lies in the fairways and, you know, limit the bunker square footage. And, and I think that that's the right approach. That's another, you know, sort of taking your local environment into, you know, in, into, into account when you design that. And that was, that was what, um, I mean, there was a point in time where they talked about building a golf course with no bunkers. But with the tour and the fact that they had so many bunkers there before, they felt like there might be a, a bit of a, a, you know, a feeling that the, the city had been shortchanged or something. So they, they just very lim they limited the bunkers. There's a lot of bunkerless holes out there. And um, I think that was a good approach for given the area we were in. And well, so I, I, can't, I can't say that uh, Bill and Ben – uh, Bill Cora, Ben Crenshaw, mm -hmm. at the new layout at Bandon Dunes Resort, the Sheep Ranch, they uh, decided that they were not going to use any bunkers. 
I've seen it. I've walked it. I've, I've enjoyed the, the ground contours that are a part of it. Do you think the, the smaller amount of bunkers that you used in Houston and Bill and Ben's decision not to use bunkers at the sheep ranch uh, uh, is, a, is a thing that should be uh, championed? 100%. And I'll tell you, I spent – so when they opened the golf course memorial, it was a very busy, very busy golf course, 60,000 rounds a year. They opened in November 6th. They've sold every tee time since they opened. Every tee time has been sold to give you an idea of how busy. They tried to stretch them out, you know, do a soft opening because the golf course was grown in so fast, things like that. So I, the first month, I spent a lot of time out there talking to people to see what their reaction to the golf course was because here you got a tour golf course where you're also going to have 60,000 rounds. That's an interesting, you know, dilemma to, to uh, puzzle to solve. And no one ever said or it seemed to even notice that there was fewer bunkers because there was enough of other stuff going on. And I have a feeling that I haven't seen the new sheep ranch. I have a feeling ben, Bill and Ben, when people play the sheep ranch, how many people walk off that golf course and say, gee, I wish there was bunkers out there. I bet you it's not even the, a topic whatsoever. I bet no one's bored and no one thinks twice about it. I, I don't know what you, you've been out there. Is that, is that accurate? Well, it's, it's accurate because there are so many other great features that Bill and Ben used out there. As you know, ground contours yeah. and topography uh, have as much enjoyment for me, and I'm sure for you, uh, yeah. you and Mike Nuzo at Wolf Point used the ground contours to bring the golf course to life. So the, the idea that Bill and Ben uh, chose not to use bunkers at the Sheep Ranch, when you walk the ground, the, the ground contours are so much fun that I agree with you. When you walk off, somebody would say, geez, that place needed 110 bunkers. Guys, how, how interesting does the land have to be? Would it have to be for a golf course to be successful with no bunkers? Successfully, artistically successful, satisfactorily successful. I'll let you go first, Don. I, well... I suppose it's, it's how much you want to work at it. But, um, you know, if you didn't have great land, um, and I don't want to make this whole thing about Wolf Point, but I will just answer it this way. Wolf Point was flat pasture land. We shaped it all. But, you know, when you're working around a green and, you know, a two-foot cut and a two-foot fill ends up with a four-foot change in, you know, elevation, you start doing some wrinkles like that. It doesn't take a lot of work to create some interesting cross slopes and different things that make that can give you interesting short game shots around the green as opposed to just an explosion shot. So obviously if the land's better, it, 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 it probably is even, you know, easier. But uh, my sense is that, um, and I'll go back to what Brooks said when Brooks, when we talked about it, Brooks said, you know, for us, we're trying to hold, every greenside bunker shot. We're not trying to get close. We're trying to make it every single one. That's how we approach it. He goes, yet the, when I play in pro-ams, the pro-am, my, my am partners, that gives them fits. We like the greenside bunkers because we know the ball can't get away from the green. We're going to be relatively near the green and we're going to try to make it. So the contour is, is, in my opinion, is easier for the, the higher handicap player and adds challenge compared to bunkers for the scratch. And, 
and it's certainly less expensive to build and less expensive to to maintain. So, I don't know if that answered your question, but well, it did for me a little bit because you 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 showed that certain golf courses look uh, certain golfers look at certain hazards as a a benefit or 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 a, a, a negative. The rest of us, me, the average golfer, looks up at a bunker like, uh, and I think about McKenzie and 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 Maxwell and Thomas, who were not very good golfers, golfers, but were excellent designers. They didn't always have to have a bunker to to set up a green or to to make the challenge. And for me, Derek, when you ask about how good does the land have to be, I think the land has to have enough movement that there's an uneasiness when you have the ball sitting above or below your foot. I think there has to be enough interest in the greens that you're just not hitting up to a flat surface. I think there has to be enough interest in the, in, in the, the green surrounds, a bump or a, or a knob, uh, or as uh, Maxwell used to do, the Maxwell rolls. So there has to be enough interest in the ground game in front of the green as, as well as in the landing area to create that interest. And so less, to me, less bunkers would be A-OK. So I have to say to Don and you both, for me, the ground contours, if they're interesting enough, and Don just said it, up feet, up two feet, down two feet, makes a four-foot elevation change. That's enough to create interest in the game. And to me, that's all you would need. Now, some lands are more spectacular. The sheep ranch land is spectacular. Nobody will not miss a bunker out there. So good contours, good green sets, good approaches all make the difference between more bunkers or less bunkers, in my opinion. At some point, the the golfer, the consumer, the person who's playing has to play a role in these discussions, whether it's accepting the bunker as a hazard because the sand is different than they're used to, or maybe it's not kept at all. It's not raked at all. Now that we're going through this uh, pandemic, no golf courses have rakes. We may come out the other side with a, a new appreciation of bunkers being a hazard. That would be a nice touch. Or facing a golf course, playing a golf course with no bunkers. But th- isn't it on the, the golfer themselves on a widespread level for them to be able to accept, accept some of these things that we're talking about and incorporate it into what they like and don't like? Because right now, I can envision a lot of people reacting that you know a golf course the golf course experience wouldn't be the same without a certain number of bunkers or a certain artistic flair that they enjoy looking at and that bunkers add um i i suppose that's possible uh i think that that's probably more of a mindset of those of us that study this stuff and i wonder if somebody that's just going out there to play if the interest is there around the greens if the interest is there in the fairways and maybe where a fairway bunker would normally be instead there's a there's a depression or some sort of you know ground movement or whatever that gives you a the ball below your feet and you know or whatever I, I wonder if they really will because I go back to uh, I always go back to we think we know what they want and one of the things I've learned early on is if, if most if you listen to most of the advisors in golf and they would say a certain a high handicap player doesn't like a certain they would tell you that they wouldn't like a golf course with the wild greens that jim has seen at wolf point we didn't experience that 
We didn't see people that came out there. Well, they just wanted to know when they could come back. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's exclusive nature of it, whatever, but I see it at Memorial too, where there's only 19 bunkers. I haven't heard anybody. And, and, and it's the same crowd that played before when the, every green had three bunkers around it. And, and I don't ever, I've never one single time heard a player say it was better with more bunkers. And so I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, we haven't talked about this, but I think one thing about bunkers, Jim, and this is something I'd like to hear your opinion on Jim, cause you, you know, so many people. And that is the one thing about bunkers is let's face it. in these sketches we see on Twitter in these renderings people do in kind of the shaping type of thing. Bunkers are a place to sort of show your stuff. And I wonder if sometimes that doesn't drive some of the things we see where, you know, maybe doing it with ground contours instead of that bunker, you know, you, you start seeing some of the really cool sketches that some of the architects do that are posting on social media all the time. They're almost always, always the centerpieces are bunkers. And what if, what if they're a little bit harder to draw if you don't, you know, as dramatic to draw if you don't have the bunkers there? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that statement about the bunker has become the, the focal point uh, in some people's minds. And maybe that was always the case uh, even in the golden age. But I told this to Derek. It's funny that McDonald, Charles Bud McDonald, and if you don't mind me quoting him, Don, he said, hmm. the only thing I do now is to endeavor to make the hazards as natural as possible. I try not to make the golf course any harder, but I try to make it more interesting. So for me and you, that two and four foot contour is interesting. Yeah. Or someone who is who is trying to make a splash uh, with their style of architecture. And, you know, somebody could say even McKenzie did that because he was very, he, his camouflage bunkers were really the, the start of this, this creativity and, 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 uh, and design, the, the camouflage bunkers. It started a long time ago, but it seems like that the focus. Show me, show me what you're doing down there uh, at Wolf Point. Would you show me a ground contour or would you show me a bunker? Well, based on what I know about you and Mike, you would show me a ground contour, and I could accept that. But for people who don't understand ground contours, wouldn't a bunker capture their imagination more? So that's where I think where we're at now. I wonder if we're going to get into a time period now that we have so many talented shapers Bunker specialists, people who, as you guys are alluding to, are really talented uh, creating these edges and these looks. Will we get into a, a period where we have a um, focus on ground contour? Let's 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 outdo one another on the funky funky earthen works, you know, that we can put in front of the green, like you were saying a minute ago, Jim, or off to the side of a green, and, and really focusing on on earth instead of sand. Well, to me, it seems to be much more economical. Uh, Don could answer to the question of what it costs to put out labor to rake 140 bunkers, but e e the economy of of uh, of the bunker I always look at. But I always get a kick out of this, and I and I, I looked up on Webster's dictionary. It says, uh, "How do you define a hazard?" Well, a hazard is potential danger, a dangerous outcome, 
an obstacle on a golf course. So if I had a few of those, then I would have then I would have succeeded. If I, if I have a hundred of them, I'm not so sure that I would be justifying their potential danger or dangerous outcome. So I hope I hope that ground contours will be at least looked upon as another option instead of three bunkers around a green. And Don said it wisely when he said, you know, one bunker versus three, 60 bunkers at Houston uh, versus 19. Those are the things that that capture my imagination. And the reason they capture it is because I go back to where I learned about golf. And I learned it in, in Scotland. And I learned it by walking the links courses. And the funny thing is about those links courses, Don, and, and I don't know if you would agree with me on this, is that those Scots, you know, they're kind of a thrifty kind of, of people. They, they, they watch yeah. how they spend that money. They had all the chance to build hundreds and hundreds of bunkers per golf course because what they built their golf courses on was sand. Yeah. And yet they were as thrifty as anybody about building them. Wonder why they didn't transfer to America. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, I just think you, that's a good, you know, the ground contours are pretty good in Scotland too, aren't they? Oh, awesome. <laughs> so, so, you know, they kind of got it going on in both ways, but, uh, you know, I just, I just really think it should be regional to the site you're on. You've worked on some really great sites, Sandy Very sites, lucky. Jim. Thank you. Very lucky. And, and, and those Sandy sites, you know, if you want to do a hundred buckers out there and they can be kind of scrapes and wasty areas or whatever, they make perfect sense out there. Right. I mean, they work and they, and they, and because it's good draining soils or whatever, they're not full of weeds and they, it works. You can make it work. But then when you get into heavier soil sites, you know, the, the, what, 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 what the, the other thing about the ground contours thing is they're super functional for drainage for surface drainage compared to a hole in the ground or bunker, which is not. So you start getting these unusual looking bunkers that kind of prop up in the air because you can't, they'll be full of water all the time because it rains so much. And, and so you, you get a more unnatural look and, and they work and they, you know, people strive to make the bunkers look cool or whatever. But when you look down there and the bunker is above the green, some, in many, you know, in some cases where you're on a heavy soil site or whatever, and you're like, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. It, kind of feels weird and it, at, at the same time you've got to run drainage to that bunker and you've got to do all these things where it, the ground contours you know the, well a lot of the ground contours at wolf point were there for drainage you know those 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 ridges that look like they're cool golf those are drain breaks water's going one way the water's going the other way to get it into a pipe or a ditch so the thing can play fast when it in a wet climate and and that's i just think I just think we should be doing more of that in these heavy soil sites all across the southeastern U.S. And, you know, I mean, I know there's some sand in the region, but primarily it's not. And 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 we're, we're building these bunkers at great expense. And, uh, the, the, and it's not just the cost. It's not just the bunker sand and just the shaping. It's 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 the land work you have to do, the earthwork you have to do to create that, to nest that bunker in there and run drainage to it and everything else where ground contours – way less maintenance, way less construction cost, and way more functional to to spin water away from areas that you're trying to keep dry and playable. So I'd like to think we're going to see more of it. I think we will. 
And I, I think the guys that the guys that are great bunker builders would be great at that too. And I think they already are. I think there's a lot of that already going on, but I'd like to see more, I guess. I'd like to see more golf courses in, you know, heavy soil areas with 15 bunkers or 12 bunkers and they matter. And because you have 12 instead of 60, you know, you have enough resources to take care of and Maybe those bunkers can be a little more severe and they could be hand raked and not machine raked or whatever. Cause you have so few of them. Uh, I just, it just makes a lot of sense to me. And on the flip side of that, you know, if you're in some awesome Sandy site, a hundred bunkers makes perfect sense too. So I think it should be more site specific and bunkers don't travel as well as um, sometimes we think in golf feels like to me. Well, you know, Don, we could debate uh, that, that idea of, of, of locality, but you and I both agree, or you could disagree with me if you want. Sometimes bunkers are very pretty to look at. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody wants a pretty one to look at. At some point we're going to need our bunker fix. We can't go bunkerless all the time. (laughs) Right. And that's okay. You know, let's just go bunkerless half the holes. (laughs) (laughs) Good one, Don. All right, guys. Good thoughts. Don, thanks for coming into the salon and talking to us. And hopefully we'll get a chance to extend this conversation. I don't think we've heard the last of the bunker discussion. Good job, Don. I really enjoyed talking to you. Same here, Jim. Thank you. 